Welcome to MedTech Speed to Data, a KeyTech podcast. I'm your host, Andy Rogers, VP of Business Development at KeyTech. Each month, me and a KeyTecher are going to interview a MedTech leader and talk to them about the critical data-driven decisions they make in their programs. Hi, everybody. Welcome to MedTech Speed to Data. I'm your host, Andy Rogers, back again, episode 26. Uh, today on the show, we have Ryan Myers, CEO of CranioSense. Ryan, welcome to the show. Thanks for having us. And uh, I guess I'm officially a podcast veteran. Sounds like this is your second recording. It's very informal. We'll have a great time. And again, thanks for hopping on. I appreciate it. Excellent. Yeah, you got 10x on me, but you know, hopefully it doesn't show. <laughs> on this episode, we're going to talk about your platform, the, the iPass. I'll let you describe the acronym. I, I'm going to butcher it. Um, but but maybe before we get into the, the product, Ryan, we're, we're always interested in the human element. You know, tell us your story. What's your background? Are you technical or are you more business savvy? And kind of what led you to uh, leading a startup medical device company? Sure. So my background, um, it's it's pretty dynamic, I guess. Uh, jack of all trades. You know, I don't I have a technical background, um, but, you know, I definitely have always been interested in the business side of things, which kind of, you know, marrying the two worlds together. Uh, but yeah, so I went to, uh, you know, kind of growing up, I always kind of wanted to marry the two together, right? I was very technical focused, but, you know, always was trying to, to, to hustle for lack of a better, uh, phrase, um, went to Northeastern for undergrad, did, um, mechanical engineering, focused on biomechanics. So very technical from that perspective. Um, but always taking a lot of business classes on the side, went out for my PhD, uh, in bioengineering out of Northeastern as well. Studied in a neurophysiology lab, Dr. Joe Ayers, uh, up in the Marine Science Center, literally World War II bunker that Northeastern bought for a dollar. Um, so I worked underground for five years, which was uh, an interesting lifestyle for sure. Graduated in 2017 and really decided that I wanted to see that research translate over and, and really be able to help people. Um, and so the, uh, the notion of staying in academia wasn't really, I guess, uh, one that I thought I could, I could achieve kind of that translation over into, into industry and, and really into patients. My, my focus has always been medical in nature. Um, and so joined up at a company called Vivonics, which is really a, a great place where uh, they focus on early research and development, right? They focus on getting government grants to, to fund really, you know, risky ideas, really innovative ideas, and then to commercialize those, whether that be through a license deal or an outright sale, um, or in our case, a, a spinoff, right? And so, you know, all that in mind, um, somewhere in there I fit in uh, going back to school for my MBA out of uh, University of Illinois Urbana-Champaign uh, remotely. Highly recommend the program about halfway through, uh, focusing on entrepreneurship and, and M&A. So, you know, I guess at this point it is kind of the two worlds colliding all the way back together and, and uh, founding, co-founding uh, Craniosense. Oh, yeah. So, Ryan, you know, great, great background. Uh, sounds kind of similar to my background, except for not quite smart enough to get a PhD or focused enough and dabbled with the idea of an MBA, but went for the school of hard knocks instead. Um, but um, great. So Vivonics seems like a great place to join um, after your PhD to um, to explore new technologies. Is that where uh, Craniosense came from? Yeah. So um... – you know, right around when I joined, we had a new grant uh, that was that was being issued um, for this specific technology. Uh, you know, in the DoD, um, 
sorry, acronyms with grants, Department of Defense, um, you know, traumatic brain injury, TBI, uh, is is pretty prevalent, right? There's blasts, there's things going off. Um, it's really hard to diagnose. It's really hard to treat in the field. And so they've been on the lookout for a non-invasive way of essentially assessing, you know, casualties in on the battlefield. And so we were able to secure some grant funding to kind of explore uh, using near-infrared technology to kind of support that diagnosis. And so, yeah, you know, that's that's really the birthplace of that and and a few other neuro-focused uh, devices that we were able to create at my time, with my time there. Uh, and so, uh, yeah, essentially that's where, that's where it all began. Okay. And so uh, the product, I understand it's called the, uh, the iPass. Um, can you describe, you know, the acronym for our audience and just generally what it is when it's used? Yeah, totally. Yeah. So Disclaimer, that's going to have to change. So we're going to have to do another <laughs> podcast in a few years because uh, right. there's trademarks all over that. But when you're doing research and development, um, you know, a nice little tagline or a nice little like acronym name is is important to kind of, you know, everybody can then they don't have to say, you know, uh, the intracranial pressure assessment and screening system. You know, that's just that's a mouthful. Right. So it we is. just said I pass after a while. So yeah, you know, essentially it's it's a non-invasive way of assessing the pressure state and then monitoring it thereafter, um, kind of a, regardless of why that pressure came about, right? So intracranial pressure comes about due to traumatic brain injury and concussion, right? That's where a lot of people's heads go initially, uh, but it also arises due to stroke, due to cardiac arrest. Um, there's idiopathic reasons, so we don't quite know why those arise, but essentially there's people are are walking around with elevated intracranial pressures, um, acute liver failure, sepsis, right? Um, and, and a lot of times we think of it as a symptom of, of these conditions, but in reality it ends up being its own treatable pathological state, right? And so what we do is um, we try to reduce the diagnostic burden of that intracranial hypertension diagnosis, and thereby getting the treatment sooner. And the way we do that is by using near-infrared light to look into the skull uh, and, and then assess kind of how the, the vasculature, so the blood vessels are changing when that pressure builds up, right? So it's a very mechanical kind of process, right? Pressure builds up, blood vessels react differently. Fluid dynamics, right? All that fun engineering stuff we learned back in undergrad. Um, and then we essentially, the secret sauce is we reference that to a point outside of the skull. I see. And by looking at that differential, we actually get kind of a uh, the person, the patient being coming their own baseline, right? So we have non-pressurized blood vessels over here. We have pressurized blood vessels over here. We compare the two, and and that's what we've been able to show correlates to intracranial pressure. Got it. Yeah, I was going to ask, you know, why not diagnose or look for concussion? And it seems like you're looking for uh, symptoms, and certainly one cause could be a concussion or all those other areas you described. So it's a sort of a broader uh, platform you can use in a lot of different disease states, which is smart. Yeah, it's um, a platform in disease states is, is kind of how we think of it. Um, medical indications, you know, etiologies, however you kind of want to talk about it. But yeah, intracranial pressure is, is kind of this broader problem set. And non-invasive intracranial pressure monitor assessment has actually be, been coined like the the holy grail of of neurology of neurosurgery because the only way to do it right now is to essentially put a hole in your head or a hole in your spine and manually assess the pressure right, right. And so we only really do that for like the really 
diseased folks because it, it doubles as uh, a treatment a lot of the time. You can actually remove some of the CSF, the cerebral spinal fluid. So, so yeah. Yeah, so so I was, you know, was going to ask that the treatment is is clear. If you have increased pressure, you know, you you drain, right? I mean, obviously mm-hmm. there are other treatments, but that's the immediate, you know, treatment. Is that right? Yeah, there's some pharmacological kind of treatments. There's some um, surgical treatments. It kind of depends on, you know, essentially what the etiology is, how how acute kind of the, your setting is, um, how acute your presentation is, and so yeah, that's that's certainly one of the more advanced ways of doing it you essentially just remove you know there's only there's only four things within that cavity the spine and the skull is you know removing one of those essentially then would reduce the pressure so removing csf removes that pressure in a more rural or you know we say kind of uh, remote care setting um you could do hypertonic saline right so that uh where when you don't have a neurosurgeon around you can really pump somebody full of hypertonic saline create this like fluid transfer across the blood brain barrier and mm-hmm. remove some of the water content from the brain. That's and then there's, there's everything between kind of, that's the most inert, right? Um, there's also drugs that do that too. So mannitol will do that as well, but, um, but yeah, Got those it. are the two extremes. So, so you're developing this, this portable iPad sized kind of gooey device mm-hmm. tethered to um, the, the skull somewhere. I think I saw maybe the forehead and then, Mm-hmm. Uh, two reference nodes on your earlobes. Is that right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So yeah. we have that deep brain sensor. So that looks into the brain. Um, and then on that same sensor, we have a, a forehead kind of sensor. So it looks at the vascular pool on your forehead. And then we have an ear. And then we have a finger. It looks like a pulse ox. Um, so essentially, we have one true pressure reading. And then we have three reference pressure readings. So yeah. Yep. Yeah. But then the rest is tethered to, you know, a, a readout device. Yeah. So that's, you know, it seems like a, 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 a clinical need and, and a clever way to go about doing it. You know, I guess, so you were working at this other company and decided to spin CranioSense off. Let's get into now, you know, the, the speed to data portion of this podcast. Um, not everyone knows what speed to data is, but to me, it's what data is most critical to make you, Ryan, decide to kind of leave, you know, a, a cushy job. I don't know. And, you know, go out and actually you know, put a dent in the world with this, with this product, what data did you see early on to make you decide to go out and spin this company out? First, I'm going to focus on the cushy job part. That just means in my mind that I look very rested <laughs> and well-kept after having uh, worked really hard on whatever I was working on for, for so many years. Now it's um, what makes me want to spin this off. You know, obviously it's, it's belief in, in the device and there's certainly data uh, that supports that. But I think there's there's probably various stakeholders looking at various data sets, um, and then the speed to get to those is is a question for each of those, right? So certainly for us, right, it was being ingrained in the project, you know, for five years, right, and saying, okay, well, you know, let's take a step back, right? We could either do one of these few things, which one um, makes the most sense for us, and so you know, we looked at kind of. The data that was coming out of IPASS, we were able to publish a healthy human subject feasibility study, right? Because we were able to say, you know, what we're measuring actually correlates to intracranial pressure. That was peer reviewed, right? So that was a big step in in the right direction. And then we have an ongoing study looking at a direct comparison to the invasive sensors, right? And the data coming off of that was really, really powerful. Um, that's not published yet, so that's a little inside baseball for us. But that's kind of what ended up getting 
my co-founder and I, Chris, uh, Christian DiMatteo, to, to commit to spinning it off, right? Um, we saw that it was working. We knew there was a clinical need. And now we're just essentially building everything around uh, the, the link between those two, right? Um, so, yeah, it's been a yeah. it's been a road. There's other things going on, but. No, that, that's uh, super interesting. Yeah, I mean, you know the clinical need and, and the prototype's working. If I may, I mean, I, I read the website. There's an invasive study going on, like 60 patients, and you're kind of wading through that. We'll get to that in a moment. But I wasn't aware of this healthy human study. So tell us a little bit about that, you know, because that seems like a pretty easy way to uh, evaluate a novel medical device, just put it on healthy humans. But did you induce some sort of intracranial pressure or were there, I don't know, migraine patients or something that like sort of ha- present that way? Or how did you do that? You know, with any kind of really novel push, right, you you really want to try to understand the how physiologically the the patient and the person is reacting. I choose to capture as much data as possible, like throw every sensor that we possibly can on on a person, um, induce whatever state you're trying to induce, and then record and, and then analyze all that data afterwards. Um, we certainly had a central hypothesis, right? We had a, a, a thought that this this reference kind of approach was, was going to pan out. But we definitely we threw on other things like um, uh, non-invasive blood pressure. Uh, we threw on, um, you know, ECG, uh, all sorts of things that, okay, if if they don't change, then we know it doesn't have an impact, right? But if they do change, then we then we know maybe we have to take those into account in the the end product, right? Um, you don't want some weird physiological state kind of creeping up on you. But that said, you know, a feasibility study in healthy human subjects is valuable to some degree, and then it's it, you know, the value kind of stops, right? So we were able to to essentially use a tilt table to put people at a positive 45 degree angle and then a negative 45 degree angle and everything in between. Yeah. Um, and essentially induce a pressure change, right? Which the, that pressure change was already published. Yeah. The, the data or the, essentially the algorithm to, to estimate what the intracranial pressure change was, was already published. So we were working off of that. And then what we would do is just put our sensor on and all those other sensors and, and be able to say, okay, well we can track that change. Right. Mm -hmm. And so we published, we only published one, of our physiological parameters, um, delta pulse transit time, which is essentially the the difference between when the heartbeat arrives in the brain and when it arrives in another part of the body. Um, we published that one physiological parameter and and the accuracy of it, um, and the rest the rest we kind of have to keep behind closed doors a little bit, you know, secret sauce. Um, we talked a little bit about IP, uh, you know, before the episode, but some of it's going to remain trade secret, right? We don't want to kind of divulge everything. Yep. Yeah. I mean, I love that story of, you know, kind of hacking the product development process and literally leaning patients or healthy humans, not patients over <laughs> to induce healthy, you know, intracranial pressure. Um, you know, if I may, like, what was the pedigree of the device that you were using in that study? Did you even need like an IRB and everything? Or were you kind of just using the experimental setup you've been using um previously yeah it's a great question too you know we've done a lot of clinical studies and clinical trials over over the years so we're pretty familiar with with different ways to to evaluate both internally like hey is this working and then externally like let's get some um let's get some momentum behind us so we talked about one of the stakeholders being ourselves but then another stakeholder is our our eventual customers right they're gonna have to believe in this device so 
we did some evaluation internally where it was, you know, we were putting it on the, the principal investigators and, and tilting them upside and down. And we were like, oh, this is changing. This is great. Something's happening. Um, and then we went through the, a formal IRB and and recruited patients. I see. Um, or, or subjects, really. They were all healthy. So that, that made it a little bit easier as well. Um, we didn't have to go through a hospital. It really specifically in order to publish, right? We wanted that momentum afterwards to say, look, this is this is working. So yeah. um, it's a little, it's a mixture of both. And we, we deploy them at different times too. So got it. So then on the invasive study, I imagine the one that's more costly and longer, um, ultimately with your target, I assume your target uh, patient population, did you do a kind of call it a clinical trial device design following ISO 1345 uh, design controls? And is that your ultimate commercial product that you're using in that invasive study? This is great. Cause I don't even have to, I don't have to like be shady about the whole thing. We followed a, we have a whole design history file. Um, Good. We followed a 13485 um, model, but we don't have to go full. Like we essentially have to go up to clinical release, right? So you need kind of the full package in order to get certified, but we've, we modeled it after that, that first part. Um, we did internal manufacturing. Um, so we were able to kind of do those as well um, under, you know, various SOPs and, and making sure that that's all on the up and up. Um, we essentially built a clinical system, right? So part of, part of the secret sauce for us is an algorithm, right? So we're going to pack in a really intelligent algorithm into the device and, and protect all of that internal uh, to the device itself. And so what we wanted to do was continue our data gathering. And so we built a system that essentially gathers our data, but then harvests data off of multi-monitors that are already placed in the ICU. Um, and so we had to make that infrastructure. So a lot of what that system is right now, it's like a pole mounted system that sits in the ICU. A lot of that will be stripped away for the device when we go to market. Um, it is in individuals that have had a traumatic brain injury or some brain injury. So it could be stroke, um, but they, they land in the neuro ICU um, and they have invasive sensors placed, right? So that's all of our inclusion criteria. We don't manufacture any of that. It just, whoever presents that way and, and then their loved ones consent um, we can then place our, our sensors on them and gather the data uh, that we need to develop the algorithm. So we're about halfway through. Um, we presented some of that data at Neurocritical Care Society last year. Um, so Yeah, no, that, that's very exciting. It seems like you, you're following the kind of lean, lean prototyping thinking of, you know, mounted on a pole. It doesn't need to be the ruggedized, you know, commercial product. Just get it in the clinic, get that, get that data. So my follow-on question for the data you're collecting in the trial, I mean, these patients, maybe I'm just mis, um, not spe- not well-informed on the patient population, but isn't it kind of obvious they have uh, high intracranial pressure? So I guess to what degree uh, and what accuracy is, is it clinically relevant? Is it kind of like, yes, they have elevated or they don't? Or does every sort of, uh, I don't know, down to the 10th of a, you know, uh, sort of whatever level of pressure you're, you're sensing, does that matter? That's a that's an awesome question. So now we, we get back to data and stakeholders, right? So so in order for doctors to trust our device, right, we have to baseline it off of a the gold standard. And the gold standard is these invasive sensors, whether they're, um, you know, in some industries, in some kind of uh, etiologies, it's a lumbar puncture. In others, it's a bolt sensor, which is um, it's, it is a brain sensor, but it it's a continuous monitor. And then others is this external ventricular drain, which goes down into the ventricles and essentially um, 
CSF is is siphoned off. Um, and and so we have to demonstrate to the clinical community that it is it is representative of the same tool you would want to use, but you can't in, for whatever reason. So we're going to take this information that we get from here in the algorithm and say, look, it's accurate based on on this study and this study. And then we're going to go to communities where, you know, our, our essentially our go-to-market strategy is to, to get into communities where they don't have access to that all the time, right? It doesn't make ethical sense to put a sensor into these our, these other people, right? So, so about six and a half million people in the U.S. come into the emergency department with either head trauma that doesn't elevate to the very obvious, right? Like you talked about, like usually we're just throwing those in, like we know those people are in really dire straits. Or they come in with non-traumatic headache. But that whole population is essentially at risk of, of intracranial hypertension. And we can either do point assessments that don't tell us what the pressure is, like CT scans and, and MRIs. Yeah. Um, or we can do a really quick and dirty kind of presentation analyses, like Glasgow Coma Scale, where we're asking questions and things like that. The struggle is, because we don't have like the same tools as cardiology, the triage times just go through the roof. Like you essentially sit there for si over six hours at risk of intracranial hypertension when it only takes about two hours to damage the brain in that in that mm -hmm. instance. So we just need better tools. And so we're essentially co-opting the data that we're getting here, which is really, really hard to recruit, but that's really for not only stakeholder val uh, validation, the but case. then FDA. Yeah. yeah. Um, they then believe in it in these other settings, right? Mm -hmm. So it's kind, of a, it's kind of a means to an end. We can't go the other route. We can't go... You know, Andy hits his head. He's he's totally fine, but we convince him to put a brain sensor in. Like that's not really that's not yeah. fair. Um, so, but then, but then the, the the devil's advocate question then is like, what are the therapeutic options for your mild traumatic brain and your your high school soccer concussion type patient where you know you you notice some elevation, but you know, is that like you know where, where's the science there? Like you, you're definitely going to do a, you know, a drain or kind of just monitor more closely or you have to educate the market is maybe, maybe another way to ask that question. So our initial market that we're going to, we don't have to educate, right? So there are drugs. So, so the two populations that I talked about, one being non-traumatic headache, um, about 15% of migraines are misdiagnosed as migraines. They're actually elevated intracranial hypertension. Um, and those individuals we have medication for, but we're just misdiagnosing today, right? So instead of giving them migraine medications like Excedrin, um, we should be giving them things to essentially slow down their CSF production, right? So we're essentially treating them the wrong way. And it takes about like eight to 10 doctor's visits for those individuals to then get appropriately diagnosed. It's like, it's extremely hard to diagnose because it's, it's like headache, confusion, blurred vision. It's just common common things like I always joke like I'm about to have my second son in July I promise you I will have all three of those symptoms sometime in July <laughs> like so so I'm not going to have elevated intracranial pressure I'm just going to be exhausted right and then same thing with concussion right we mix diagnose about 40 percent of missed, uh, concussions within the emergency department it's not it's not charted right that we're diagnosing them that way um, if they have elevated intracranial pressure the treatment is the exact opposite for individuals that wouldn't, right? So with a concussion, we're pushing electrolytes, fluids, 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 right? If you have elevated pressure, it's the treatment is actually the exact op opposite. It's that let's get enough water out of your brain 
to reduce the pressure, right? So the treatment modalities are just, they're just different and we're just doing them wrong today. And it's not the doctor's fault. It's, it's on us. We don't, we're not giving them the tools they need to, to get those diagnoses correct. So, yeah. Awesome. Yeah, no, I mean, clearly there's a need and I guess, when would you use a competing product like a brain scope, you know, for example, that's diagnosing concussion in a clinic versus, you know, cranio sense, you know, which is you know, obviously sensing uh, intracranial pressure. With brain scope and infrascanner, infrascanner does um, hemorrhage detection, right? Um, those are, are very useful tools, right? And uh, I think there's a, there's a place for all of these things. Um, both of those, uh, you know, have very specific treatments thereafter. Concussion is, is a little difficult because you saw Abbott just come out with a blood test as well, right? Diagnosing concussion so that people don't get more concussions, very, very important, right? But there's no concussion med right now, right? Mm -hmm. So we can treat hypertension, right? Intracranial hypertension. There's no kind of, you know, treatment for concussion, and, and that's frustrating, but what these do unlock, like what BrainScope, what Abbott might unlock is then treatments, treatment studies where we're like, okay, well, this person has a concussion, this one doesn't. Let's treat this, let's treat this person with something um, and see if it helps. And that kind of unlocks that because beforehand, concussion diagnosis is, is again, it's just really yeah, difficult, right? You don't know what you're dealing with. Yeah. You don't know what you're dealing with. And, it, and it's the same thing with, with our tool as well is, is, the studies in like pre-hospital treatment of traumatic brain injury and even in hospital treatment um, or, you know, in the field treatment, the studies are really tough to do because you're essentially, you have no idea what's happening to them, right? So you're treating them in a way, but it's really hard to segment that population down and say, okay, well, we treated this person that had this very specific thing and it worked for them or it didn't work for them. Right. And so I think one of the things that our tool unlocked as well is, is the ability then to look at how do we better manage these individuals kind of across the care spectrum, whether it's pre-hospital, in-hospital or, or at home in recovery. Yeah. You've got a whole separate business model on, you know, being a sort of a, a precision diagnostic for therapies. Um, that's, that's huge. Yeah. Cool. Yeah, All right. So start somewhere, right. Yeah. Yeah. No. Yeah. Familiar with trying to focus on, you know, the most, uh, most critical type, type patient. So, um, so Ryan, you know, we're going to pivot towards the end here. And, and I guess, um, I know that, uh, uh, Craniosense has gotten a lot of funding through DOD. You mentioned that earlier and maybe universities with grants and whatnot, I guess for a startup med device, um, company, would you recommend pursuing uh, DOD or NIH or what, what advice would you have for somebody who's maybe going after an emergency use type product? Yeah. It it's a great question. I think I think grants fit in kind of the ecosystem, right? Of of whatever you're trying to do. I know some folks that are trying to fund purely off of grants, and and they're doing well. But I think it's I think the easiest way to kind of skirt the question almost is is to say that it, it's probably a combination of everything, right? Got it. I think you know we haven't talked about this with speed to data, but one of those to data things that we found was not actually in the data that we were gathering, but the human factors data that we saw, right? So our original hypothesis was essentially to look at this artery that came out of your skull over your eye, right? And use that as our reference, our, our true pressure point. So we wouldn't have to go through the skull, right? So that worked, right? It just was like a human factors nightmare, right? And the only way that we would have gotten that data 
was to get in the clinic and and to see, and to do that right away, right? So we that was something that we saw, and we were able to then pivot within the grants, right? So we de-risked a lot of the technical, almost all of the technical with our grants, right? Um, and so it's it's been really powerful for us to do that. But now we see we see the market that we have to go to. The technical is de-risk. Now we have to de-risk ClinReg, product dev, right? Um, we have to go through our de novo study, right? Those are things that we can recruit money quicker and spend it quicker through capital raises, right? Equity raises, uh, more so than we can do grant mechanisms, which are non-dilutive and, and have this like really long life cycle. That said, one of the things that we're going to do is all those parallel pathways that we that I kind of alluded to, we're definitely using or we're going to try to use uh, grant funding to kind of explore some of those. So not distract from going after exactly what we have to do, but to leverage non-dilutive mechanisms to say, hey, we might be able to help here or, hey, we really need healthcare economics information here. Let's go get a grant to explore that. Um, so I think there's there's a place for it, uh, but it's it's definitely not a catch-all, right? And I don't think they want it to be used as a catch-all either, right? They want to see these products get to market, and they know that eventually, with how much it costs to get a product to market these days, you're going to need to raise equity. So th I think they also like to see that too, uh, they being the, the grantors. Yeah, no, I mean, I think the playbook you're following and, and writing, honestly, is is the right one where the clinical need is just screaming at you. Right. And, and the, but you need to prove the technology through the grants, which are a great way to do that. And once you've proven the technology and you see the clinical need, then it's more of a human factors productization type challenge that investors are more willing maybe to invest in if they see the finish line there. And, and, you know, I think your product in this, in the scheme of like, you know, usability is not, not as complex as say, you know, a surgical robot, but, um, you know, you're applying a couple of things and, and getting going with a GUI. So I think the risk there seems like palatable and manageable, I guess, from an investor's perspective. Um, yeah. Yeah. But it, so. it took, I mean, that's, it's now palatable to write an investor, right? I, this idea, and, and maybe it goes back to like, however risky your, your, your product is, whether it's technical, clean rig, you know, commercialization, whatever risk you have, right? At a certain point, if it's too risky, nobody's going to invest, right? The U.S. government was willing to invest in us because they saw the potential, right? And they don't necessarily have the we need to make money on this, you know, card that they have to play, right? right. So we were able to leverage that to de-risk the tech to now be in a place where, you know, the, the risk is palatable to an investor. Right. Awesome. Great. Well, hey, Ryan, thank you so much for sharing your story on Sense and you know, it sounds like you're, you were born to hustle and you're still doing it. So best of luck and, you know, with fundraising and all these trials you have going on. And I'm definitely a fan. Um, and, and we'll follow up after the episode just to uh, learn more about uh, your story. So, and thanks for coming on, Ryan. I appreciate yeah, it. Yeah. Thanks for having us um, anytime. Thanks for tuning in to MedTech Speed to Data, a key tech podcast. Join us each month for more ways to get the right data faster to inform critical decisions. Find additional resources on our website, keytechinc.com. If you like this episode, don't forget to subscribe and please leave a review on iTunes whenever you listen. Thanks.